You're listening to the Art of Move podcast hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. One, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. He is out in the Canadian Rockies. I am out in Mexico, and we are joined today by our friend, Devin Brown, the founder of One of a Kind Fitness. We are still trying to find a grand unified theory of human movement and biomechanics and how to live and move in the human body. And today, Devin is going to be telling us about his fitness system, which is oriented around strength training as it relates to gait mechanics, one of the most fundamental human patterns, how his system orients strength training essentially to that, you know, the mechanical principles of locomotion. And so Devin, we're stoked to have you on for episode number two. If you guys didn't see the first episode, it is a really good one as well. We got very, very technical. This episode is not going to be an exception. We are getting into the nerdy nitty gritty of it and we're really, really excited. But just to start everyone off, I'd love to get a broad overview of what one of a kind fitness is, how you sort of came to it, and uh, and then we'll get into a little bit of uh, you know some nuances and some details about some of the technicalities of it. One hundred percent. Well, uh, first off, have, thanks for having me on again, guys. Love being here. Love chatting with you guys, especially getting deep into this like the the biomechanics and just deep into the different things of movement is is always a great talk, right? Um, and for the people out there, we're gonna get we're gonna get deep into it. We're gonna talk about a lot of different things. So, um, to start it off, one of a kind fitness is the uh, the company I basically started. So, one of a kind fitness is is our name, and basically what we do is, I think the easiest way to put it is that we are a slightly advanced version of strength training, right? So, typical traditional strength training doesn't really take into account the gait model or the gait cycle. It doesn't really put in biomechanics into that whole framework very well. And I think that causes them to, for one, apply a lot of information incorrectly. And then two, it, it basically allows, it basically makes them miss on certain exercises. So they're not training certain parts of the body because they're only looking at it from this one perspective, this very linear strength training type perspective, right? So overall, OKF training is really like an advancement on traditional strength training, but it keeps in mind like eight cycle and how the body truly is designed to move which then makes us change, modify, and just add more to those traditional type lifts or take away a lot, to be honest, right? Um, what else with that? How I got here. So I have been through a long journey of different systems. I've been through a long journey of sports training, and I've been through a long journey of getting injured and wondering why, right? Um, that question of why has really kept me on this path the longest. So I started off being more of a sports guy, you know, so I was in the athletic world, a lot of traditional training, which means you're deadlifting, you are power cleaning, you are squatting, you are lunging, you are benching, you are doing everything, right? Um, They don't really apply that again to any type of gait cycle. It's just pure on build strength, build power. How much of that can you build that's going to translate to that field? Um, With that, man, I was always getting injured in certain ways where I didn't feel I should. I could deadlift 400 pounds, but I'd pull my hamstring trying to run. And and this just doesn't add up in my brain. So over time, I kind of kept asking, why, why, why? Why is that guy able to squat, get better, stronger, faster, not get hurt? But I'm out here doing the same thing, probably working harder, and I'm not able to put that into the field or it, it comes off almost in a negative way. My back is now killing me. I can't bend over without a spasm, stuff like that. 
um, that just kept leading me on to where I actually had a friend introduce me to anatomy trains early on. And he was basically like, listen, traditional training's not working. He ended up becoming a chiropractor. That's where he went to. Um, but he's like, you know, traditional training, just it's not there. It's There's more to it. It's more about these fascial slings. And he started going on stuff like that. Um, and I dove into that world for a little bit. But then I was trying to play sports and I felt like I was losing my athleticism. So when you come from that world of just pure power and strength of, of lifting or driving, and then you go to a world where you're not doing that so much, you definitely notice that like you, you can't give as much force into things, obviously, right? You're not training that same principle. Um, and what happened with that is it made me then just jump back and forth. I was like, all right, well, maybe I can mix and match the lifting with this type of stuff. And that just didn't work. I'd, I'd either hurt myself trying to do the lift or I'd go play and then I'd, I'd injure something there. And it just kept making me dig that the question of why some people get results and don't get injured versus why others do just was eating at me basically the whole time. Um, so as I continued on that path, I kept going through things and I found a ton of different biomech systems, which is basically what I got into. And I would, I would buy them. I would purchase them. You would go full into them, learn about them, and then kind of ask the questions from there. Like what I still had questions on. If they can't answer those questions that I keep having to me, they're still searching and it, it, it just means it's not complete. So you got to keep moving with that. Um, and that's really brought me up to where I am today, essentially going through a ton of systems, training my butt off for sports, and it all kind of accumulating into me seeing these patterns where certain exercises get certain results and other ones don't, or why those certain people. And what happened is basically we can answer those questions. And, and that's what OKF is, is it's, it's allowing people to understand why that person can squat and you can't, or why that person might've been able to do all those cool things and been like, oh, it's so easy. You just squat down and come up. But when you do that, you're like, dude, my, my back is like about to pop or my knees are about to go. Answering those questions to me is the biggest thing. And once you can answer that, it starts opening your eyes to so many things because you can then answer all those different questions of, well, why does my shoulder hurt? Well, shoot, I've been doing it like this for so long. And that's not how the shoulder even works when we move. So it really just built up from all that information, all those mistakes, learning from that and putting it into something that actually had an underlying system. So it could then start to be built up and you can start to actually, let's say, experiment without falling outside of that that framework. Right. So you can try new exercises or take old ones and try to, to make them even better. But you have to kind of follow the framework that we've laid out, which we can kind of get into a little bit more as we go into this. So that's my introduction there. Um, what do we want to go with from there? And Will, you're just a little blurry. I don't know if you if we want to adjust the screen just a touch, but okay, cool. Yeah, my camera might just be off, but uh, okay. but yeah, I think it's auto focusing to your background instead of you. Oh, it's gotcha. finding that light behind you. That's what yeah. it's doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, just a broad question. Let's start broadly here. Okay, I like the fact that you're trying to marry strength with uh, with gait cycle, right? And that's the million dollar question: Can you do that? Exactly. Um, up until now, I've looked at every system. I'm like, no, this isn't happening, right? So that begs the question first, what is strength to you? Because traditionally, uh, the other day I was watching a Mike Israel video and he reiterates over and over and over again, you get strong in the gym, then you go and do your sport, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think you have the same narrative, except what he believes strength is, is build up weight. Let's say get a 400-pound squat, you'll be stronger and then you go and do your sport and you'll be this powerful guy. How does your narrative differ from that? And how do you define strength? 
And if I can sneak in stability in there, that'd be amazing. As well. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think uh, the best way to put it is strength with balance, right? Um, learning to balance the tensions throughout your body while building strength and, and respecting that. So a big piece of what traditional training or let's just say, um, I think it's Dr. How do you say his name? Israel. I think the big thing they miss is that they love stressing a singular muscle. They love biasing muscles of the body, right? When we move, we don't bias muscle. You might see, and it might look like we would bias a muscle in a certain position when we're running, but the reality is our body wants balance. Our body wants to come back to a homeostasis. So when you see that balance, it's not like it's trying to bias the hamstring, right? It's actually using all your muscles in, in a sequence because of how they're firing together. So if your muscles are firing in unison and have this tension, then as you move, that tension increases in certain areas and basically transfers through your body. We have certain areas of our body that are designed to handle more tension than others. So they need to be firing at certain times and they need to be able to handle load throughout basically their full length. Right. Um, so I think the big thing with that would be like biasing something. So just pure strength. Most of the time people are biasing a muscle for that pure strength in some way or the other. Um, whether it be breaking their body in half and only using their upper body, uh, breaking it in half and using one leg versus the other, and then just hinging. So now you're lengthening your hamstring and your quad is not really getting the work it should with the hamstring. Um, and then I would say even then, he's probably a little bit shorter of a guy. So he has good uh, limb ratios, which means for him, it's probably easy to squat. He probably doesn't have to overly think that. I think I saw a little clip of him squatting on a Smith's machine. And he's like, oh, a simple tip. Listen, if you have short limbs and they're very favorable for your squat, it's actually much easier for you to get into a good squat without compensating. But people who have unfavorable limbs for the traditional squat, it literally makes it impossible for you to then do that squat correctly without breaking somewhere along your chain, compensating through your thoracolumbar junction, whether it's your lumbar, whether it's your upper, somewhere you're going to compensate. And this is what they don't seem to see, especially those shorter guys like him who's super smart because he understands a lot of things. They have a lot of science that is correct, in my opinion. They just go about it wrong. They don't have the full full perspective of it that, oh, that tall guy can't do that like you, you just made him do. It, he's actually breaking somewhere. Or you don't see that L5, S1, where it's actually starting to give too much flexion because you're looking higher up and you're like, oh, he's got a lumbar curve. It looks great. They don't notice these little things when they're doing this. So without the underlying understanding of, of kind of how the body is developed, from crawling, walking to running and the stressors that occur to make that happen, you can't really know. You just think build strength that carries over, right? Um, so think of it more like a strength through balance. If your body can balance all the tensions while building that strength, you're now developing every part of that body, right? Um, so yeah, that would be a big piece of that. And then building stability, I think, I think again, we, we covered this a little last time, but I, we have almost our own stability mobility model at OKF where it's completely the opposite of what they used to teach everybody, right? Mobilize your hips, mobilize your shoulders. They're supposed to be so mobile, but the reality is they're supposed to be stable in those ranges of motion. So you can't just mobilize them and then expect your body to be able to now handle this full on action of whipping your arm back and it should go with you or your body should learn to rotate. Now your body's disconnected and it's like, oh, throw that back. Well, there it goes. So you start seeing this when you run or your body protects itself. A cool little tidbit with this is when your joints are not stable, the proper joints, they look 
super stable when you run, as in they look very stiff, right? When your joints are stable and you run, you actually look looser. You look more like you have a movement to your body, like you can flow and use your whole body, right? One of my clients called this like the wiggle. He says, you know, you, when you play sports, you have this wiggle that you can just move a certain way. Other people don't have this and they believe the way to get it is getting more mobile, not realizing that their body's protecting itself. So that's why they look so stiff and so tight. Hmm. And it's like this loop, this cycle where got to get more mobile to make that stuff move. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe it's more activating and then dynamically stabilizing that joint. So it now has the ability to express that movement while you're actually doing something fast and dynamically. Right? Hmm. All right. So, so I always used to define strength as the ability to recruit motor units for, for output, right? And so that, that's how I visualize strength coming from the powerlifting background, right? And a lot of people would say it's force production. Would you say that the, your approach to strength training is basically still trying to create force production, but more in a sequence and more within a dynamic chain that orients itself to gate mechanics? Yes. So force production, in my opinion, is important, right? I think they apply this wrong for most cases. Again, not seeing how force production into your heels can compensate during your run um, instead of force production into maybe the ball of your foot, which is what happens when you actually do stuff athletically. So instead of kind of like tossing, you know, the expression, tossing the baby out with the bathwater, horrible expression, but you get it, um, (laughs) is just because certain things that they've done and the science they believe in has caused maybe compensations that we deem not great doesn't mean the entire thing that they're trying to do is wrong. So to me, force production is still great. Yeah. 100%. If you can't produce force, you can't resist force. Like that's how you resist force is you produce it. Think of them like you produce force, they meet, and now you have this elastic ability to then kind of go in and out of that space. So Force production is huge. I would say motor units, all that part of the science, in my opinion, is still correct. They just apply it wrong. And that's where things go south, right? They don't account for your glutes being on diagonals of your body. So they're never doing anything to actually target the the glute or the the posterior hip joint is what I would say there. Mm. There's not a single exercise that they do that actually covers that. Um, And then along with that, they're just biasing muscles left and right, doing all these funky things. So yeah, definitely force production, motor units, all that still applies. It's just how you apply that to your lift and where that goes throughout your body. Right. So let's talk a little bit about how you view the gait cycle, how you view some of these native behavior patterns and and locomotive patterns of the human being and how that, and we'll get a little bit more into how that gait model will inform how you do your strength training movements. Okay. So essentially kind of finding like our baseline of a good gait cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So, out there, they, they've already taught this a lot in, in certain, we'll say in certain places. So there's certain guys, if you look into, they study more biomechanics and compensations and things that occur, uh, Chaldeets, people like that. Um, they go into that a little bit on that side of things. And I think the best way to say it is we're looking for a gait cycle that has, I mean, I guess it's done described as well. We're looking for a gait cycle that has minimal compensations going through it. So your body can work as efficiently as possible. And what that looks like is, let's say, the alignment of your joints with a flow of your joints. So when your body is not touching the ground, if two spots are going towards each other, you're going to see things rotating, even though you're not intentionally rotating them, right? Um, So I would say that when you're running, you're not looking to land in a knee valgus. Nobody wants that. Then we'd have to define what knee valgus truly is. 
right? Because there's dynamic knee valgus, there's anatomical knee valgus, which are two different things that people don't seem to understand. So anatomical knee valgus is pretty much the misalignment of your femur to your tibia and, and your shin, right? Your femur is overly twisted one way, your tibia is twisted the other way. And just when you stand there, your knees touch each other and your feet don't. That's anatomical knee valgus. This is like a, a real issue that people can have. Um, now, I would we, we can go over what I think that that's from, but we'll do that after we talk about dynamic knee valgus. So dynamic knee valgus is more of a newer idea for people. And it's basically the idea that, you know, if you're moving and you see your knee go into valgus and out and stuff, it's not that bad. I think I would argue that a little bit. Um, and I think it would be very uh, contextual. So depending on what leg that is, where it is, what it's doing, what you're doing, what you're about to do would all make a big difference there. And then the actual definition of valgus. So valgus in itself, people seem to think just your knee going in means valgus. That's not what valgus is. Your knee going in is in internal rotation or adduction of that part of your leg. If your foot is facing the opposite way of your knee, this is what then makes it knee valgus. This is what causes that torque into the knee when you land and have the vertical ground reaction forces that you're going to feel. So if your foot is now shifted out, out and your knee is already shifting in and then you land on that, well, now you're putting these pressures in places that are going to directly stress your ACL and your medial meniscus more than others. And it's not going to put that stress into your glute, which is kind of what it's designed for, right? It's kind of why your glute encompasses the back of that joint and it doesn't sit on your back and then reach two strands of muscle to the side of your hip. It encompasses that joint because that's where energy is designed to go into so that it can expand and then come back out of that like a trampoline or like a slingshot. You don't have that on your knee. That's why you have a quad up top, right? You don't have it over your kneecap. I recently posted about this because it's not designed to handle a ton of force going right through into that joint like that, right? I think knees over toes doing excessive amount of driving your knee forward will start to make your body put more pressure into the knee when you do certain things, which in the end, long-term, it's not going to work out for you, right? So, after we kind of define knee valgus a little bit, dynamic and, and anatomical knee valgus, we can start to understand that, in my opinion, landing in a knee valgus is not great. But people confuse that knee valgus with, honestly, just internal rotation of the leg, which is loading of the glutes or properly loading the posterior hip while using the anterior hip. And honestly, the entire body, you're using posterior chain, anterior chain, every time, all the time. It's a back and forth keel to keep a balance, okay? That's why, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go to something, we'll go for another question or do something from there. I'll go right into, that's why we squat the way we do. It's why squat is king. It's why controlling your center of mass is huge mm. because that's mm. how you make your body stay balanced front to back. That's how your body can then work together side to side, front to back, and as a unit, balancing those tensions, okay? I don't know if I answered the question or not, but I really went on it there. So <laughs> what you got? Yeah, there's, a, there's about a million questions I have out of that, right? So um, <laughs> let's go back to let's go back to Valgus, right? Because me and you uh, went on the same DM uh, about they're like, hey, we don't know what's happening here with the uh, knee Valgus and ACL tear, right? And me and you went on the DMs. We're like, hey, we have some ideas and everyone's like cricket quiet, right? Yep. So yeah. Um, how do you think that plays out? Okay, so uh, traditionally, let, let me just give context here. Traditionally, um, the uh, the studies that I've seen are 30 soccer 
players, females, jump off a box, land in Valgus, and that is just defined as knees going in, okay? And they see that these soccer players don't have any extra ACL tears during the season, okay? So they conclude that Valgus isn't important for uh, ACL tears, okay? Which is ridiculous. So it is more important as you're putting energy through the system. I'm sure you agree with that. So how do you see the ACL tear happen during the valgus as it as it's happening and and yeah talk talk about the hip and the and the (laughs) foot and how you see that connected so i would say that with all that essentially like you said they don't look at actual they they don't they don't truly know what they're seeing there right they can they define valgus as the knees going in and that's valgus right there so they just assume everything is like that And with that study, again, as you pointed out, they don't really correlate the things together in any way. It's just like they landed a box like that. Oh, that's how their body did it. Now they're fine during the season. Not a a great, uh, we'll say, method or, or total for that study. It doesn't really give you a full picture. So with that, what I would say with knee valgus is this. It doesn't mean you're going to tear your knee that time every time, right? We all know that. We've seen people go in and out of it. Great athletes go in and out of it. But it does mean it's going to stress out that part of that joint more. And it does mean if you repeat that pattern over and over and over and over, you're then going to stress that thing out to the point where it's going to cause an adaptation in your body. So to me, what happens is most of the time, it's either whether you give that much power, it's one of those times where you've done a thing that causes that much energy to go through the joint and it can't handle that. That's where you get the traditional load management, right? Because you can adapt to anything. And if you build yourself up to it, I've seen some people do some crazy things that they have load managed up to that point. It doesn't mean it's safe. doesn't mean it's great, but they've certainly done it and they can do things I certainly can't do. Right. But down the line, I'd say it'll probably catch up to them. So sorry, just to, just to cut you off uh, for one second and clarify, that's, that's your ATG. That's your uh, progressive overload. We can't stop this injury from happening because we don't think that the mechanics can be, uh loaded in traded into you so we progressively overload the tissue and get it long and strong so that when you do get in those positions you are safe true right exactly that's that's load management that's what they call or that's what they go by now i'm not saying load management is a is a complete crock it is important right for strength training but understanding the body can adapt to anything means if you load manage it correctly you can build up bad patterns and just make them freakishly strong now what that means is over time, this is where it comes into where it's important to understand that your body has muscles in certain places for certain reasons is because they can handle more of that repetition or they can handle more of that stress over time. So that load management is a great idea, right? But we know if you land in that knee valgus enough over time, it has wear and tear. You're basically lengthening out like your ACL. Over time, you're making that thing probably longer or weaker and not translate well. Your shin is probably being pulled forward as your femur is being yanked back, which directly stresses out that ACL a ton, or should say lengthens it out a ton, right? So there's so much more going on there than people realize when your foot hits the ground, when your glute fires, you have your femur and your tibia and all these things. And if those aren't holding together well, you start to cause excessive stress over and over. Um, So the two big ways would be wear and tear, in my opinion, and you're adapting into more of a valgus type state. Because once you're in valgus, if you just simply go up and down and jump, you probably are causing more valgus to occur, right? You're just adding gravity and more force down onto the already misaligned structure. So it's going to get worse in that regard. 
<clears throat> now with that, what, what was I saying there? Lost we were talking. Second. We were talking about Valgus and landing so, and jumping. Yeah. Yeah, so with that, you have your wear and tear, but you also have your like big impact, or you have your body is not. Let's call it body is not ready for that movement, right? We see this happen with people who injure themselves just by walking or just doing a random thing. Mm -hmm. Is that if your body is not ready to handle that, and let's say you already have a little valgus going on, you have excessive eversion in your ankle, and you're always landing really far onto the inside of that foot as your knee's cracking in, it's stressing your 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 knee at the point where your foot is being hit the ground and trying to twist out because of that's just what it's doing as a lever twisted out like that. Your knee is trying to go in. That's just how that thing works as you move forward. It cycles through and inward because your pelvis rotates, the femur follows. So essentially every little step could be the last step. It could cause injury to that thing. And this is where you see a lot of that non-contact injury, just jogging down the field or barely moving. Um, you see the bigger injuries when you see like a sprint and they full out go and they, again, they hit that one time where their knee can't handle it in that position because of how much power Let's, how much power momentum creates, right? How much force truly happens when you're utilizing your momentum and moving is so much more than people grasp. It's it's five to eight times your body weight just going into the ground. So imagine utilizing that momentum and then stopping. Now it's going into the ground and you have to stop your body. There's just so many forces going on that if you're not aligned and your body isn't connected in those ways and that's the way it feels safe is in a valgus, over time, it's going to cause injury or you're going to have that big injury. It's just – it really is inevitable Inevitable the more you look at the body and you look at injuries, the more you study injuries occur, right? Um, a quick tidbit to add to that. On that study, I think that we were uh, – we kind of commented on Will. He was also going on something where your, your ACL gets lengthened. It gets lengthened the most when your knee is straight, right, during the gait cycle, when you're sprinting. Um, and a lot of people confuse this as stressing. I even said the word stress, which is probably not fully correct. It's, it's causing it to lengthen. It's not stressing in that sense. It's lengthening that. Um, and this is because during those two points, when your foot is almost towards the ground, is right when your foot flicks forward and your glute fires. So your shin is translating forward. Your femur is getting yanked back. That's why it causes that to get longer. And then same idea happens right when you leave the ground right? Your, your shin is still going backwards and it's moving the opposite way. Or your shin is now rapidly flying forward and it causes this length to happen in the ACL, but it's not necessarily meaning that you are tearing your ACL when your leg goes straight in the air. The tear itself is happening when you land on impact on that, that force hitting going through that joint. Okay. So long answer short, that right there. <laughs> That's the part they couldn't figure out right there. They're like, why is that happening if it's long and stressed at the at the And they were front, thinking, the... well, maybe your knee goes into valgus after it tears. Well, yeah. it might go into it more after the tears. Yeah, we don't know. But that's not really the question at hand. It's yeah. how it tears or why it tears, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, awesome. Let's let's go into some traditional strength training movements that are really popular for you know the average gym rat and how you think they might cause compensations and how you might modify them to make them more relatable to movement. Uh, you know, when I think of traditional strength training movements, I think of like a military press, I think of a barbell back squat, a deadlift, I think of pull-ups, um, you know, all of these things that are, you know, your, your horizontal and vertical push pull, your squat and your lunge, right? So let's, let's talk about, I know you have a unique approach to squats. 
Um, and I and I have a few questions about your squat. You know, one of the one of the yes. written questions from our uh, from our viewers is actually why is the one of a kind fitness squat more related to movement than a regular squat? How about you talk a little bit about some of the compensations that a person could develop by doing barbell back squats or even front squats, and then why you do the OKF squat the way that you do? One hundred percent. So let's go right into that and go. Let's real quick. Let's just go to that list. You kind of just um, you know threw out a couple different movements: lunges, overhead presses, things like that. In my opinion, most of those exercises are bias-based exercises right? Um, and they're trying to bias specific parts of the body instead of keeping a balance, keeping that center of mass directly over, let's say, center of the foot. So to me, the king of those exercises really is, is the squat, the one you mentioned there. Now, with the squat and traditional training, you know, you've got so many different cues from the past. You have tripod foot, you have just big toe, you have outside, you, you have so many cues going on through all of fitness um, that it starts to really just People overlook what I think is the most important part, which is maintaining that balance throughout your structure. So as we move forward, we see people starting to adapt to this by um, putting plates under their heels, Olympic lifting shoes, right? What do all these things have in common? They lift your heels up. Yeah. So what is that accomplishing for that person? Most people, it's allowing them to get their knee to translate forward forward or forward more so that they can maintain this center of balance over the middle of their foot better. Now, the problem I have with that is you're putting your heel on something. You can still push through your heel in that movement. In fact, you could probably cause more things to stretch out doing that because your foot's on a heel or on a plate and it's got nothing on the arch and then it's going to the ball. But what I would say is why wouldn't you want to use that fascia, that plantar fascia under your foot? Why wouldn't you want to use your Achilles, your soleus, your calf in a squat? Makes no sense. Why would you want to to sit back so far your knees never pass your toes so that the fact that you can't actually get a good balance or engagement throughout the muscles of your lower limb when, I mean, squatting is directly teaching you to produce force into the ground. And if you can't use your lower limb correctly through a balance, you're really just teaching your lower limb or your leg how to bias things and compensate when you move, right? So what we've done with our squat is we've basically said, well, if everyone's using plates and it does, I mean, listen, back eight years ago, I had my clients squatting with, with plates under their heels. And I'm like, I'm a genius. <laughs> I got these guys better. He feels better. His back doesn't hurt. But if you don't know why that did that, you really are just, you're just guessing. You're just throwing stuff at the wall. Oh, it worked a little bit. That's the one I'm keeping. Once you figure out why it works, you can start to mess with it more and, and, and kind of make it even more efficient. So your heels in the air, <clears throat> when you squat traditionally, right? For Man, I'll jump around so so much on this. Let me try and gather a thought and just go with it. So we'll start at the top. With a traditional back squat, you're in an extreme external rotation of your shoulders. In my opinion, that is a very weird position to get into for this. If you yeah, if you have right, if you have really good limb ratios again, which I do not for that, you'll be able to get there and maybe lock that down and feel everything really working together. There's some people out there, you'll see them squat and you're like, that, that, that guy's got something locked into that position but even then the bar falls back you it's just it's just a weird thing in my opinion you're not engaging the same muscles you would when you're running jumping and all that you're really yanking everything back into this weird position just because that's what you've been taught and then you're squatting down with that right so same thing with front squat this is an extreme external rotation in my opinion as well it's just not it doesn't involve the retraction of the elbow 
which is like the main difference. So instead of here, I'm here. I'm really doing mm. a very similar external rotation through that. So extreme external rotation. Um, with that, that's already going to cause you now to throw the chest out, right? That's really what they do that for is to get big extension through that chest. But now what that does is causes an in interference with your body as you go down if you're doing a traditional squat. So if your heels are on the ground and you do a traditional squat and you don't have a favorable limb ratio, what happens is your body has to compensate somewhere to try and maintain a balance. For most of us, it happens right through our lumbar junction, right? Right through that, that middle point where our, our rib cage is. The reason is because you're also taught to push your knees out, which tightens your glutes, which pulls your lumbar with it. Okay, so if you push your knees out or tighten your glutes and squeeze them glutes real hard, this actually causes your lumbar or your pelvis to start to tuck under. That's kind of a coupled motion that your lumbopelvic hip complex has. When you squeeze your butt, your lumbar tries to come for the ride. That's what it does, right? It's like the posterior tilt to an anterior tilt. If you start to flare everything out or you twist your legs in, the exact opposite, you flex your hip flexors in the front, everything opens the opposite way. That's a coupled motion. So if you're going down in a squat and you're forcing your thoracic to stick out while you're now squeezing your butt, pushing your knees out and you're sitting, this is going to cause a disconnect through your spine. You're like forcing a compensation. You're forcing a hinge point through the thoracolumbar junction, meaning now you're starting to tuck through the lumbar, the pelvis and everything. Even if you're not trying to, if your glutes are squeezing, trust me, it's pulling on them bones. And then what happens is you're sticking the upper half of your spine out. So now we have this look of a flat lower back but the rib flare and the chest is up and out, right? This was me squatting like 300 some pounds. And I was always wondering why it's hurting me and not that guy. Well, there's your big answer right there. If I'm teaching my body to do two different things from top to bottom, it's breaking me. And then I'm putting 300 pounds on top of that. It's causing what, what we call a hinge point through your third columbar junction. Now you're hypermobile right here. And instead of bending through your glutes and your hips, you start bending or hinging through your spine. Much more, you should say. Okay? So that led us even further, and we start going on to that. And you, you really figure out that if you allow your heels to lift as you go down, they kind of just lift when your soleus gets to length. But you're still trying to use all that muscle, your calf, your quad, all the way up. You start to notice you can basically resist that compensation. You don't need to break there because when you do this, along with keeping your knees aligned, keeping lateral stability, which allows everything to open around your hips, this then allows basically to fix that hinge point. You're creating a new hinge point through your glutes, which is where it's supposed to be, while letting everything balance. So basically, letting your heels lift as you go down in a squat while really paying attention to balancing your knees to your hips, to your calf, to your heel, to your toes, kind of in that, that back and forth, like spring looking thing, or a, like, I guess a bunch of levers going back and forth, right? The more you look at that, it basically allows you to squat without compensations, which is the goal in the first place, right? Strength training's goal is to reduce your compensations as you move or as you do things. That's why we want good form in the first place. So, with that, essentially, I'll, I'll put it all into one whole thing is, is we took the traditional squat, we took away this extreme external rotation, and we allow you to let your heels lift up so you can maintain a center of balance directly in the center of your foot. Even though our pressure is in the ball of our foot, the heel lifts up, you can still maintain evenness right through the center, okay? 
What that does is allow you not to compensate so much. And then we said, okay, well, why not put a safety bar or something you can actually get up here where you can then find your lats and your chest all at the same time, allowing you to stabilize your upper body. So you're stabilizing your shoulders, um, your lumbopelvic hip complex, lateral stability is stabilizing your lumbar, pelvis, and your hips. And now they can actually load without compensating. That's why you compensate in the first set place. One side doesn't have lateral stability. And this will just push me into another part of this where this is why you see certain systems trying to stimulate our lateral lines because a lateral line is huge. If you can't get lateral stability through your lateral lines, you're going to fall into one side versus the other when you do things. Okay. This is actually, we, we found this by studying babies and seeing how babies develop. This is lateral stability is the concept that I believe allows you to develop as a baby without being completely uneven and ruining your body. If you're crawling, you're constantly resisting pushing, or you're basically pushing outwards, but resisting that at the same time. So you're trying not to just slip and go into a split. You're trying to maintain your legs right where they are as you just crawl, flexion, 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 produce force down through the hip, through the knee, into the ground, okay? And as we do that, if you crawl well, that's how you become even as you then begin to walk. Now you have lateral stability as you're walking and now you start to rotate because lateral stability equals better rotation, more efficient rotation. If we're not swaying side to side, we can rotate better. This is also why you have some babies who crawl with one leg versus the other. And then when they grow up, they tend to have this big imbalance where they tend to almost basically develop scoliosis hmm. as, they're, as they're growing. Because if you can't laterally stabilize from your hands to your feet, which then stabilizes your shoulders and your hips, which then allows you to efficiently rotate and counter rotate through your pelvis and your shoulders. Well, then your spine doesn't move very well. Right. And we know our spine needs the ability to move. So, so go ahead. speaking, go ahead. speaking of that ability, speaking of that ability to move the spine, right. One of the main concerns of conventional weightlifting, particularly squats and deadlifts within the functional fitness space is this axial load on the spine, the compression of the spinal discs. Is yes. that a consideration that you have in terms of how you load it? I know you use the safety bar. I know you use some trap bars for your, your movements. Um, what's your thoughts on axial loading of the spine and how could that, uh, you know, is that a consideration in when you're, when you're programming your stuff? So with that, what I would say is you're actually learning with our breathing and everything, we're learning to expand and create an internal pressure, right? Um, we've all heard that in many different forms, but the best way I think to, to say that is if you have a deflated balloon and it's collapsing, then that axial load is going to just cause more issues or compensations to happen. But if you can properly breathe and create an internal pressure without tucking the pelvis, driving and bracing the core, this is actually fighting that vertical load, right? It's a, a thing I posted the other day, which is incredibly important, is resisting gravity and vertical forces is huge for a human. For one, that's how you develop. You, grow, you literally resist gravity, right? As you're crawling, as you're a baby, as you grow, as you get up, as you get older, you're resisting gravity. What a lot of people don't do well when they get older is resist gravity. They start to curl over, their spine becomes more round. Um, everything, their hips get tight. Everything's trying to protect itself and get more basically compressed because it's trying to resist gravity, but they're not doing a great job at it. You know, lifestyle, the way we've been taught all that. So I think it's incredibly important to think about that. But all that really means is that you can only lift so much 
without losing that internal pressure which in today's age is not really a thing. They kind of are like, yeah, I'll throw a belt to one. I'll do the squat. As long as they're holding their breath, bracing their core, they think they've got it. I would argue that most of them lose it pretty quickly when they go into their squat, right? They're probably losing their, their L3, 4, 5. Everything down there is probably rounding a little bit while higher up into their spine might look like it has a lordotic curve. So really, I think they're causing more issue. But back to that axial loading. The reason this is so important is because when you go down the steps, Anthony – you have an axial low hit you like it hits you maybe not as much as a big weight on your spine right but you still have that you have to learn how to handle that so jumping running any of these things that has a vertical ground reaction force which is pretty much everything your body has to be able to handle that or counter that so your internal pressure helps you combat that axial load mm. and if you do that properly which is cool with the okf squat because you can't overlift. If you overlift, there ain't no way you're squatting with just your toes down and your heels coming up. It just doesn't happen. You'll fall over. You'll, you'll feel like you don't have the balance. You feel Honestly, you'll feel your body start to disconnect and try to disconnect, and you're like, that's all I can get to. Mm. So what's cool about it is it almost self-regulates or auto-regulates to where you can't overlift. If you're not simply driving through your heels, it's quite hard to produce force all the way down to your toes and maintain that internal pressure. So you can really only get so much with that. Hopefully that answers that question a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, one of the things that you were talking about was this kind of imbalance uh, and that's, the, you know, and even the development of the scoliotic curve and that if you're loading this improperly, you kind of alluded to the fact that the breathing and the internal pressure sort of, you know, reorients yourself to have a more even load. But one of the questions we got from one of our viewers is, you know, when, when you're talking about a bilateral movement, you want to have a certain degree of symmetry, especially if you're doing that axial loading. Uh, how do you address asymmetries using mainly bilateral exercises? Uh, do you do some unilateral exercises to correct imbalances before you start loading bilateral exercises? And uh, what's your what's your approach with this? So I was about to add in there is um, essentially just like traditional training would go about this, in my opinion, or if you if you met a really smart trainer, the best way they go about fixing uh, you know, an imbalance like that is unilateral work is what they'll say. I just think traditional training goes about that all wrong because we don't do anything unilaterally where half our body is turned off, right? So when you run, the, the part of your body that's not touching the ground is still active. Mm-hmm. Yet if you did a single leg squat, a traditional pistol squat, you just, you really don't even think about that side of your body. Well, that's a big issue because that's not how you develop. That's not how your body works, right? So we do have unilateral drills. We have a unilateral, we have a single leg squat. That's a very specific way to do it. We have a, what's called our kickstand hip rotation. Um, if you've been watching my stories, you've, you've been seeing people are getting close to actually figuring this one out um, because certain systems have some golden nuggets of information. They just don't apply it correctly, in my opinion. Um, so we have a unilateral exercise that targets just your posterior glute, um, with also the other, the, the rest of the body integrated. We have a part of it that focuses more on your legs capacity to load the single leg squat while we're focusing on certain mechanisms. And we only take those so far to where your body is supposed to then transfer that energy to another joint. Um, we also have rotational movements for the upper body, which go, unilaterally as well. So thinking using one arm and regaining stability of one shoulder and teaching it how to properly rotate as our our body rotates or stay connected as we rotate 
and then learning to connect that and breathing, getting more extension. This alone, let's say I'm twisted this way. Well, wouldn't that technically be untwisting my spine? So we do plenty of stuff that's unilateral, even a, a crawl variation, a stability crawl, we call it, where you're picking up one leg and almost one arm, essentially teaching the body how to, to work one side versus the other. Because the ultimate goal would to have some symmetry there, like you said, we do want symmetry in the end. And that's why we don't start people off right with a squat with weight on their back. You so really go process. Go ahead. I, I did want to bring it back just a little bit um, to the squat. And I'm going to pull up a video of you actually doing the OKF squat. And I wanted All you done. to run us, run us through this and uh, maybe keep in mind someone who is just watching for the first time being like, Hey, what yeah. is this guy doing? It looks like he's going knees in. He doesn't know what a squat, right? Basically uh, compared to traditional squats. So try to try to get that perspective of someone who's new into it and that is like, why is his knees in and not out? Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay. So <laughs> can you see my screen? Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. Let's get awesome. you to run us through this. Right. So if you can see me here, um, I'm using a safety bar, right? Safety bar is a bar that has handles that come out the front. Um, I do this because again, I think your your chest has to be engaged. If your chest is not engaged, you're not stabilizing your shoulders, right? So first things first, that's the bar. Second, when I'm squatting down, what you'll notice is my knees are traveling forward and they look like they're going inward a ton, right? Most people, it looks like a ton. For me, it just looks normal. Um, the reason for this is simple. What do your glutes do? How do your glutes load? The more you think about this question, the more you realize how traditional training is completely skewed how the glutes work, right? So if your glute, most of us already know this in a sense, and I'll just exaggerate it, but if you squeeze your butt really hard, as hard as you can, do your knees turn out or in? They turn out, right? If you want to then do the opposite of that, which would be loading that muscle, it's an obvious answer. People just hate it because they're afraid of knee valgus. They've been taught this fear. Well, the opposite of that would mean your knees have to go in a little bit to help expand and actually create abduction at the hip joint meaning decompression of my hip joints while I'm loading them and while I'm keeping everything else engaged and in line. So you'll notice my toes are also just slightly in. This is so they stay dead in line with my knees. I want alignment through my knee and my ankle and my hip, okay? Um, <clears throat> traditional training, they'll push the knees out, which again, starts to beg the question, well, how are you ever lengthening your glutes or your glute medius? you're never lengthening it and teaching it to be strong at length with which it needs. Um, you'll see this carry over into the gait cycle when somebody squats knees out all the time is when their leg goes behind them, you won't see that knee internally rotate to come forward. You'll actually see that knee try to go like around almost like a abducted knee way out to the side, trying to pull through. Mm. They've never taught your glute how to load and the glute loads when your leg is coming forward and up in the gait cycle, not, not after it's hit the ground. It's, it does it on its way up and forward into flexion, right? How, how important is um, the width of your feet when you're performing these movements? So with OKF, we have a kind of like a sliding scale with this because it depends on where you are currently, right? If you have really tight glutes or really tight external rotators, right? It could be deeper in there. It might not just be your, your glutes. It might be deeper in there and those smaller muscles that are quite important, right? Um, what is that, piriformis, things like that, that people always end up having these issues with. <clears throat> with that, oh, sorry, what was the question, Anthony? I want to stay on it. What's, what's the significance of foot distance when you're doing gotcha. these squats? So, yeah. so with that, think, if your glutes are extremely tight and you just try to keep your feet close and squat down like this, 
that tightness isn't just going to magically expand. It's, it's literally length through strength, meaning it doesn't happen that day. You adapt and then you have more length and then you can go lower. Then you can get closer with your feet. So for most people, they have to start a little bit wider. This is where they've taught their body to connect by the knees pushing out and all these things. This is where they can go a little wider, which then allows them to get a little more internal rotation, which then allows them to connect their hip flexors, their psoas, all the muscles in the front of the body that actually help stabilize the pelvis quite a bit, right? And they don't use these properly. So this is why we see a lot of people with what? Psoas issues, got to get the so right, got to release the psoas. Well, yeah, if you are never engaging that muscle and then lengthening it, well, it's, it's going to get pretty stiff and, and start yelling at you. Um, you see piriformis syndrome. We have all these other issues running down the back and the legs. Well, that is just your glutes getting excessively tight and then you're never allowing that to open. And if your glutes are tight and you try to bring your knees in, this creates excessive pinching into the front of your hip. So you, then you start to have into your hip pain, right? What, um, what is that called? Anti, anti, FAI, you know, yeah. Yeah, moral exactly. acetabular, acetabular impingement. Exactly. So think of that. FAI is a symptom of really tight external rotators while you're trying to then bring your feet and knees too close without ever getting there, ever adapting to that, ever load managing up to that point. Right. So it's important in the beginning that you find a good stance where you can actually connect all of these muscles together, your inner thighs, your glutes, your quads, and feel all of these things working together. And this is what my eight week foundational course kind of builds you through. Once you feel these connections and you do these reps and start to do these movements, your glutes expand, your external rotators get longer, stronger. Now your stance could probably get a little closer and you might feel a little more comfortable like that. Think of it as like adaptations over time determine your structure, right? Someone who squeezes their glutes a ton. I think you did a post on this. I did too. I think we actually exchanged our photos. Crossfitters. Some of the best crossfitters literally have the smallest butts in the world. Their lower backs are like non-existent. And the reason is they're constantly squeezing their glutes, just nonstop squeezing these things into oblivion. That causes everything else to get a little funky. Their knees start going out and it starts st uh, stressing other parts of their body. So really the goal would be allow your body to connect and wherever that is for you will be different for most people. It tends to be wider in the beginning. As your body connects to that and adapts to it, you can start to get closer and closer, which would technically mean more expansion to those glutes because of the front of the, the body is coming in closer. All right. So do you do any traditional stretching or let's say foam rolling, myofascial release, mobility, or is it all OKF? Have you found a happy so, medium there? What's up? In the beginning, this is what I would say. So this is also through the eight week yeah. course is I think PNF stretching or active stretching is a very good beginner for people. Getting a muscle to feel that length, but actually learning how to feel stimulation is huge. It's going to start to feel it, let it release in itself. And there's a lot of good PNF studies that show it actually creates more elasticity in a muscle, which is awesome, right? So I like uh, myofascial release. In the eight-week thing, we have skin pulling. We have myofascial release, very similar techniques, just lighter, right? Pulling the skin around, feeling fascia, kind of move where it's tight, um, what that does to your body if you move it and things like that in through myofascial release into PNF stretching or where you're getting activation. If people don't know, PNF is proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. Um, in short, there's a couple different ways to do it, but the best one in my opinion is you're learning how to flex the muscles that are at length 
while they're at length and you're kind of like pulsing them on and off. It's just to teach your body, like your nervous system, that's what it's got to be able to do, right? Mm -hmm. From that point, those are base level to me because past that, you shouldn't need that stuff to happen too, too much. So you do those things more as a primer to get your body ready. But then really, what do we know about tight muscles? Tight muscles are normally weak muscles, right? So tight muscles are normally weak muscles and they don't work well at length meaning they need to be strengthened and not just stretched all the time. So we hit that PNF, we allow them to feel stimulation while they're at length, and then we actually teach them how to load, which happens more for us isometrically and then more reactively. And that's how we go about it. So we would build you up from, you know, myofascial release, skin pulling, PNF, and then you would start interacting with the ground on all fours. So short levers, right? That's what that is. If I'm standing, I have a femur and I have my shin. That's a long lever. If I'm on my knees, I now just have my femur. That's a short lever. It allows me to handle more force in my glutes. So I can start to teach my hips and glutes how to handle pressure and force from, you know, on my knees and moving around kind of deal, which I don't want to give away too much because that's the, the eight-week foundations course that builds you through that. But then you start to stand up. So as you adapt to that, we use longer levers. We now add our shins to that equation, right? We add our feet to that equation, um, and that's where we start learning how to feel the same things that we did on the ground while we're standing. And as we're standing, once we can feel those connections, then we start to build off of that and, and create more force production. Um, and we'll say movement, but honestly, movement is is more towards the end because if you can't lock something down, doing it while moving, you definitely can't lock it down. You're going to compensate where your body compensates. It's going to go to the thing it knows how to do. So it's getting it to lock it down and then it's adding a reactive portion of that. So let's say you can get into the squat and hold it. Now, can you just drop and hold that? Now, can you start to just catch yourself in that position, teaching your body how to reactively turn the muscle on at the same time, your momentum is helping you produce force. And then you have to learn. So when that muscle hits, now it can contract, be stretched and elastically come out of that with a little concentric help, not much, but it uses concentric to help that action. Right. So that's kind of how we build you up through there. Then once you really get that down, you see things change. Your posture changes. You see, I mean, if you can ruin your posture through lifting, how do you think you would fix your posture? Lifting the right way or getting load the right way would then reverse what you've been doing. So you start to rebuild that stuff and you literally, your movement just changes. You start just moving different because now your body, that's, that's how it feels the safest. You're teaching it how to do these things in specific ways when before we were just seeing compensations and assuming they were happening for the wrong reasons, let's say. Let's hope that answers that. I know I ramble yeah. a little bit. But, you no, know, that's great. Of, great stuff. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a few other questions here. People were talking a little bit about um, hypertrophy and the upper body. Uh, there's a lot of information about the lower body and how it relates to the gait cycle and how you orient the squat around it. And you, when you were mm -hmm. talking about, you know, overhead presses and pull-ups, it's like, well, those kind of bias the body towards particular yep. muscle groups. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you're doing pull-ups, you're biasing your lats, you're doing a, a military press. It biases your, your triceps and your shoulders, a little bit of, of, of stuff going on. Um, you know, what, what is your approach to training the upper body and <clears throat> If someone specifically, you know, was maybe under muscled and they, they had a need for hypertrophy, uh, even yep. just to get to a bit, like not even talking about like building, you know, bodybuilder level proportions, I know but you had it. yeah, what, what's, your, right. what's your kind of approach to that? 
let's start out with a cool thing with, uh, you know, newer science emerging, which tells you that hypertrophy actually happens more and works better when you train a muscle at length. So first, understand that training a muscle at length creates more hypertrophy than training a muscle while it's short. Okay. Second, we actually do a lot of upper body. Well, not a lot. We do upper body movements, but this is where a cool little thing comes in. So people have been taught that their lats pull their arms down. That's like the number one thing your lats do. But your lat is not sitting right here, right? Don't you think your lat, the meat of your lat would sit right under your armpit if its whole purpose was to expand and then just pull your arm back down? I would actually start to argue that that's more of a secondary response for your lat. Your lat covers the lower quadrant of your, your lumbar, right? Or your, your lower back, and it's off to the side. So wouldn't that actually make more sense that it stabilizes your arm, considering it's connected to the exact same spot your chest is, right? Wouldn't it stabilize your arm and shoulder while it then helps you rotate? Makes a lot more sense to me, and it actually will start to emerge that that's what your lats are for. This is why we get a lot more out of our lats when our body can, sorry, when, when your body can move with your shoulders. So technically right now, if I don't move my pelvis and I go like this, well, my lat is being lengthened out. It's being lengthened out by rotation. I don't have to reach my arm up to lengthen my lap, mm. right? That's why we have a, it's a strand that goes through your, your humerus and it goes through back to your lat. It's not some big, thick muscle there, right? I would actually argue the same for your pecs. Your pecs are not designed to be this, oh, it makes my arm go there, oh, it pulls my arm in. It's a muscle that is huge here and gets smaller here. Your glute is a big muscle that encompasses the entire joint for a reason. So I think we've been looking at the body all wrong with a lot of people. So when you think, oh, I got to do pull-ups, oh, I got to do this, I would argue that you should learn how to stabilize your body maybe in this position more. Learn how to hold a bar right here and breathe and see if you can maintain your posture. That's working your lats. Then from this position, are you able to rotate? And now we start to see why some systems might get some results from the things they're doing because there are systems out there that hold a bar and rotate a little bit, aren't there? right? But they don't look at the entire package or the whole body. So with that, I would say you can train your shoulders, your chest, and all that simply by doing a push-up the right way. Because if I'm on the ground or gravity is pushing me down, and let's say I go forward and I have to stop myself, did I use more of the upper chest and the shoulder or more the lower chest? The upper, right? It's basically an overhead press. If I'm here hitting the ground like this, or if I do a push-up where I go into it like a dive bomb type of push-up in a sense, I'm technically doing a shoulder press into a chest press into like what would be considered a decline press back out into an incline press. Your body up top works in this manner of just like crawling. It works here into these positions. This is hitting all of this musculature, all of it. There is no need to go incline overhead <laughs> down that's why you run like this because all those muscles are getting worked in a sequence as your body is rotating and moving around with those shoulders so it's tough because man we don't even look at the upper body the same way that everybody else does so really we teach more of this isometric learning to stabilize these positions right if i can stabilize here just like i would when i crawl then i can start to add thoracic rotation well we're getting all of that good stuff. We're getting our lats to move. And if I can start to do this faster, well, I bet my lats working a lot more than that guy's lat. You know what I mean? So mm. you look at that different and it changes how you train the body. So we do do some things that would build hypertrophy. 
100%. Just that and learning to hold that there with while my lats on my chest at length is going to create some type of, of damage. Now, will it create the same type of hypertrophy that you would if you bias one muscle and strain it to death? No, but that's not the goal, right? We want that sprinter physique. We're not looking to be that, that bodybuilder who literally can't scratch his back. That's in, in my opinion. Some people might want that. You know, if that's you, do you, man. I don't really care. <laughs> so uh, that's that's fantastic because I agree with everything you're saying there in terms of yeah. uh, everything you've described. The lats, the uh, pecs, and the glutes all have a twisting insertion. It makes sense that they're working in the gait cycle, a smooth yeah. motion, right? And yes. working them at length and potentiating them, that word, makes a lot of sense, oh. right? So yes. could you... Let's say somebody does want to have hypertrophy and everybody wants hypertrophy, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Could this you do traditional strength uh, hypertrophy training, bodybuilding, and then do OKF right after, let's say, to take advantage of the neurological drive that you get from bodybuilding, then move straight into OKF exercises? Is that a possibility or do you think that you is know, detrimental? That's something I haven't explored yet. Um, so you, you would be like kind of saying... It's tough. So I, I really think of it like this due to when you bias a muscle, you do put more tension into that muscle than other parts. But if like, let's say you do a leg extension for, you know, 200 pounds and then you squat 200 pounds, you're not getting the same exact tension you would into that quad because it's being spread out throughout the body. So it might cause an effect to where if you bias muscles in that way, it now is stronger in that way. And it's now not going to operate the same, right? Let's say, Something I've noticed, people who do a lot of bicep curls and are not super connected, when they run, you start seeing their arms do this a lot, right? Because it's trying to do what it's been taught. I know how to contract and bicep curl, but we don't run like that. Your bicep, even then, holds more of that 90 degree and bounces back and forth from up and down from that position. So as it goes, it has like a spring capability. Your bicep also stabilizes your shoulder, how is it going to stabilize the shoulder if it's constantly going in and out of this full length versus trying to keep more of a tension? So I, I would say we haven't really went into that one and studied it, but I don't think it would work out. If somebody wants to try it, it's not going to be me. Um, you certainly can let me know because I'm all about growing some muscle, dude. If you got to play D1 football, you can't be a skinny guy who can just run. I mean, it, certain positions might, but you do need to gain some size. In certain sports, you do need to gain a little bit of that mass. So I would say no, but you know, there's always room to play with that. That's where I was talking about in the framework. If we can keep it in the framework of stabilizing and rotating and things like that, you might just be able to build hypertrophy without doing any of that traditional stuff. You might be able to just hit your squats, do a, what, a 10 by 10. I'm sure your legs are going to grow if you're doing them right. I can tell you since I've squatted different, it's crazy. All right. So every muscle that used to get tired and cramp on me when I would sprint, now I feel it getting sore when I squat. I never used to feel that, right? I feel my sartorius. You know, does, does everybody know what that one is, right? Your sartorius goes from like your hip joint, goes over your thigh, down into your knee joint. It crosses two, it's long as heck, and it's thin. I was not using this muscle right in, in my high school because when I would run, I would cramp up there all night. I'd be like, what is going on? Well, when you don't use a muscle right, it's not getting its full stretch and contraction. It's not getting that cycle. And later on, it's like, hey, bud, I want to let you know about that. And it, it basically cramps up on you or seizes up on you. It happens to people in different spots. Mine was my cab and my sartorius because I wasn't using my glutes. I was 
my knees were so wide. I was doing all the squats, everything funky, which means I'd never load my glutes. So I'd always overuse my calves and other things, right? But that's not, they tell you, you know, they tell you a whole bunch of crap and that's why it took me so long to get here. So. <laughs> well, let's, let's move from some of the faults of the traditional lifting systems and let's talk about some of the other functional fitness systems that you kind of dove yeah. into and what you're seeing them do right. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, what observations you're seeing are, are good and what, you know, what nuggets you kind of took and adapted to your own practice. And then what things you're seeing that are also causing compensations. Uh, you know, a few uh, requests that we got were systems like GOTA, functional patterns, flowability. Uh, those are the top three. WEC method was also another one. So those are the four that kind of came up the most in terms of, uh, you know, viewer like those, requests. Even PRI, PRI has nuggets. Every system, <clears throat> we'll start it like this. I don't think there's a person out there intentionally trying to hurt people. And I think everyone's got to take that little note into their own brain. No system creator or founder or whatever they are is sitting back going, yeah, this is going to mess them up good. And they'll never <laughs> figure it out, right? It's not how it works. What normally happens is they've figured out something that no one else seems to figure out yet. And it helps them a little bit in a way. And then they're like, holy crap, we've got it. And they run with that, which is great. You should. But then they stop questioning themselves and they stop questioning certain things. And this causes them, in my opinion, to just to go off on a tangent. So they're hitting that main focus, but it's causing them to miss other parts. So you get some good, but then you get some bad. And you don't tend to notice that till you go for your run for a long time or you've been in that system, let's say, for months to a year. And then you're like, damn, dude, I'm actually starting to get a pain here now. Well, that's what I think happens, right? So no one out there is malicious in their intent. I promise you most of them, even if they've yelled at me and blocked me, it's just because they're coming from a place where they think they're helping a lot of people and I'm this guy attacking them. So no one out there is trying to be evil. But with that, let's dive into it. Um, I really do think every system, almost every single system out there has some type of golden nugget of information. They just don't know how to take that nugget out of their system or out of that exercise and apply it to everything else they do. Because why is not something that people ask. They just go, oh, I feel better. Let's keep doing it, right? But you have to ask why. Why does it work? Why did it work for you? Why did it work for that guy? Why not this guy? Why has nobody else figured out all the good why questions? So let's go with um, let's go with FP, right? Just because there was that little drama, that guy yelling at me a little bit and all that. Again, with FP, let's go over it like this. I kind of alluded to it earlier stabilizing the shoulders through protraction to an extent, right? I mean, they might overdo it a little bit, but protracting the shoulders because everyone's stuck in retraction. Everyone's stuck in this weird pull your shoulders down and back because that's how they stabilize type idea when they don't, right? So with that, they have a bar in their hands most of the time, I'll say. I, again, I don't know the full program. If you want to give me little tidbits to go on, I certainly can. I'm not going to try to give away too much of their, of their actual programs and stuff, and I'm going to be nice here, but... Think of like holding a bar that's attached to a cable and you protract a little bit and you learn to extend your chest a little bit and you breathe and then you learn how to rotate with that bar, right? And you're just learning how to essentially twist your body while you're stable. That, in my opinion, is going to help a lot of the upper body. You're getting rotation. You're getting extension through the thoracic. You're getting um, shoulder stability and all that's good stuff. But what you start to see there is lower down. So I believe FP went about fixing an anterior tilt by slightly posteriorly tucking that pelvis and sucking in the belly. Um, they do it, I want to say, for like a TVA 
type deal to, to get that stuff to help stabilize or do some things. I think they went about that part wrong, right? That's where that lateral stability comes into play. And if you laterally stabilize all the way up, it goes up to your lumbar. Now your lumbar is stable and you're getting this rotation with extension. That's what you would want there, right? Because if you posteriorly tuck, what's the coupled motion that's coming along with it? Well, your glutes are going to tighten mm -hmm. and your knees or your feet are going to start to turn out more. Okay. So <laughs> with that, we go one step further and you start to understand that Maybe an anterior pelvic tilt isn't fixed by tucking your pelvis. Maybe it's actually fixed by stopping doing the exercise that's causing it, right? Might be a good idea. Let's just go down that path. So an anterior tilt normally means you have super tight, short quads and you have long hamstrings and, and you know, all those things are causing you to tilt your butt out too much. There's a reason why studies show that that's not correlating to actual pain, right? I think that, will we agree, there's studies that are like anterior tilt's not bad, but there's studies that are like anterior tilt yeah. is bad. Right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they study it in, in context correctly. So oh, it's hard to, hard to draw conclusions from it. That's what 100%. I and I'd say one of those reasons is, like you said, they don't, they don't study it in context. And they try to bypass it by fixing it itself. What if, well, here's another thing that's come out recently. Hinges. People are like, do you round your back or do you keep it flat? Right? What if we could answer all these questions? Why the studies don't prove it right and why that happens? What if you're being taught to hinge too far for the range of motion of your hips while keeping strict form? Wouldn't that lengthen out your hamstrings and cause your, your quads to be nice and short? And at the same time, if you're really forcing that anterior tilt because you've been taught flat back, big chest, wouldn't that cause that to go into too much range of motion? So now your hamstrings can't get the proper tension. Your pelvis is just naturally now tilted out more. And then let's add on more kyphotic curve to that. Well, we know kyphosis adds lordotic curves. It makes them bigger or it makes them appear bigger, right? So if you already have an anterior tip, go ahead. You want to say something, Anthony? Well, this, this was actually, um, you know, a flowability guy. That, 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 that's a pattern that I see in flowability, right? We were talking about hinging and he was talking yep. about how the flowability hinge in general, you have your center. He, he, he actually asked, does Devin measure center of gravity in the system? Because flowability system is like you want your center of gravity over your over the center of your foot. And they, they go for these really, really deep hinges with a oh, lot of hamstring God. length. So, you know, like, so is that kind of on, like, yeah. aligned so with what you're talking about here? We are very much center of the foot. I, I love the center of mass, center of gravity, everything located over the center of that foot. This allows your body to keep that balance. And this is why you can really get more by subtracting a lot of exercises that don't align with this. So let's say I've, I've stopped hinging to 90 degrees through my pelvis, or not 90, but let's say I've stopped hinging to horizontal. So my torso doesn't get to horizontal, right? I'm still teaching a hinge if I go to 40, a 45 degree, even though it's still 90 at my hips because my knees are bent, right? I'm not going here anymore. I've got this bend, so I'm more like that. I'm still controlling my center of balance, my center of mass. I'm still hinging at the hips to 90 degrees, I'm not overdoing it. So now when I actually bend down, well, my hips open up, I get to 90 degrees, then the rest of my spine starts to join into that bend. Now my spine can globally start to flex, even though it's resisting gravity, it's globally flexing to accommodate that. But if you've taught your body how to just arch your butt out and go all the way to parallel here, you've lost that balance. You're now biasing things. You're causing tensions to change. And now what happens when you bend over is you're the guy who's overly flaring his butt to deadlift all the way to the ground. 
And I would say this is the whole reason why people are so confused. They're like, is it rounding? Is it flat? Do you do them both? Do you do neither? Well, what if you just train that joint to the proper range and then the other joints could tune in when they need to? You're still training your back in a squat. It has to hold that bar without rounding over. It's resisting that falling, resisting gravity, just like we do as we age. So with all that being said, I would say that overdoing that hinge could cause you into an anterior pelvic tilt and then tucking the pelvis to fix it would actually cause more issues than it solves, Mm. right? We originally started with FP and we'll keep going down that is so upper body is stable. Shoulders are stable, getting extension through the spine. Don't think I would suck in the belly because I want to learn how to create that internal pressure to resist gravitational forces and vertical loading, axial load. Then from there, I would want to not tuck that pelvis. I need to actually allow that to stay open. And if I just stop a person from hinging excessively and start to teach them to balance again, their anterior tilt will either disappear or they'll have an anterior tilt, but really it's not a bad tilt. It's just you know, they have a slight anterior tilt, probably their glutes are more developed and it looks more anteriorly tilted than you think it is, right? But it's basically attacking problems from the wrong end. You're going right at the thing you think it is, so you're fixing the symptom, but you're not actually fixing the cause. And you may be causing other issues to come along with that fix of that symptom, just like traditional medicine. Take the pill, whatever else you get, you know, we fix that symptom, so now take another pill. Well, what if you could just do one thing and fix all of that? And that's where we are with that, right? Um, do we want to stay on that system? I got a couple notes written down if we want to talk more. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in terms of uh, things that you're seeing that people are... Let's, let's go on that one more because I got one more with that. So I wrote some notes, right? Um, FP is very big on curved treadmills. Uh This is a tough one. So listen, if you want to get on a curved treadmill and run and see how fast you go, that's awesome. If you want to study someone's gait cycle, a curved treadmill would not be optimal, right? They're literally, the problem with with curved treadmills is they don't have vertical ground reaction forces. For what people out there who don't know what that means is you're not learning to handle the, the impact up and down. Now you would think, well, I'm still running, but this is how that works. It's a curved treadmill, meaning when your foot reaches in front of you, instead of it having to impact the ground directly under you, like it should, center of mass, center of balance, your foot now can reach out in front, connect with that treadmill, decelerate you so you don't actually impact the ground and then push you through. So it's teaching overstriding, heel striking, and it's teaching you to have no center of balance and gravity while you run. It's actually causing you to to be overly into another part of your body. So that's why I say with that, if you just wanna get on there and be like, hey, how fast did I go? That's great. But if you're using that as your primary uh, pattern, well, that's going to take over, especially because it's a run. It's a lot of force. Even though you're not impacting, you you still have forces rapidly going back and forth in different directions. Um, So if you're not handling the the actual force that you would on the ground, wouldn't that change everything up that chain all the way up and down as you're viewing that? So basically your gait cycle would look different watching it there than you would watching it somewhere else. It also doesn't prepare you. So if you're never actually handling vertical ground forces, so now your tendons are never having this elastic recoil from vertical ground forces. Your Achilles, your uh, patella tendon, your your lower back fascia, your lumbar fascia, none of that is actually getting the proper connection and then fast elastic action it's supposed to, Mm. okay? 
So that is a big one for me. That really throws things off there. And I think that's why we tend to see them run a little different when they're off that treadmill where they run almost with excessive movement or flat feet. Because if you're not teaching that body how to land directly under you or your feet directly under you while you're sprinting, while you're running, you're teaching this imbalance and this not this center of mass off balance movement, right? So that plays a big part with that. Um, what else do I have in there is sometimes – People compensate real quick. Uh, can I, can I just, uh, can Go I just ahead. quickly, just on the, on the curve treadmill thing, I know yep. that, uh, in a training setting, FP will do, uh, flat ground running. And, Love and that. for, for the most part, I understand it's mostly a convenience thing for assessments. It's, it's a but lot that more. What's that? But that, that's the whole point. What's the assessment for is to study mm. how you run on the ground. So yeah. for an assessment, it really wouldn't work out. That's the point there is. It's great. I understand that like you can't just run behind a client and you can't just get a car and drive behind them and get this thing. But you certainly can have a client film themselves run or put a camera and have them run away from it. You can do those things. We've seen that from other systems that you can study the gate cycle pretty well through that. So I don't accept that excuse quite so much. Right um, now, again, curve treadmill. Awesome. You can use it sparingly. Do it as you wish. It probably helps some things overall. I don't see the point of that. Right. Now, you might as well get a flat treadmill that moves and you can do the same thing. I get it. They also propel themselves most of the time um, or they have you strapped in where you can't actually move the way you should. So it really is like a priority thing. Your goal should be try to run on the ground. If you can't, then you actually go to more of a, a flat treadmill. And then personally, I would say curve third or more of a testing thing. Like how fast can you go on there now? Awesome. That's great. You did get faster, but you're not studying it going, oh, see how your feet are moving now? Uh, to me, you're not accounting for all the forces and that kind of skews that, right? But like I said, there's a lot of good stuff there. You gave them a lot of golden nuggets in that before even going out a couple negatives throughout that system. The big takeaway is start finding out what works, right? If two systems stabilize shoulders, and those two systems tend to get more results for neck pain and shoulder and elbow hyperextension. Well, it seems like that would be the factor that needs to be taken out and used in a way that matches up with the rest of the body as well, right? We even see this in physio office, chiro office, all these people, maybe not chiro, physio, PT, they have more of these fan blades that wobble up and down, wobble left and right. Um, they try to get people doing more stabilization drills in certain ways they just don't apply it to everything else. After that, they're like, now try to just mobilize that joint all the way around. And you're like, well, you know, you're, you're kind of doing the opposite of what we just did. So that's where you see that. All right. Do we want to move on to another system there? Yeah, let's, let's, let's hop in. Um, we got a few questions about uh, Goda and okay. not necessarily their training system, but yes. their observations about gait. Is there anything about their observation about how, the body loads and releases energy, specifically the pressure wave, the bow in the corner, the uh, the mechanics of the foot. Is there anything about their observations, not necessarily their training, that you disagree with and that you're observing differently or you think they're misinterpreting in their observation? Misinterpreting is, I think, probably the best word to use there, like you said at the end. Um, here's how I would say it. I think uh, Goda studying injuries, like that film and all that stuff, brilliant. Why would you not be studying that to figure things out of how people get hurt non-contact injury, right? Love that. Where I think they go wrong is they tend, now again, I haven't seen Goda in a long time. I kind of 
once I got out of the system, I kind of fade away from it a little bit. I don't put as much effort into them because I'm trying to develop what I think truly works. And that distraction will make you kind of go back and forth, back and forth. You might try to add too much and things like that. But so correct me if I'm like, if I'm wrong with what they do, right? I'm not trying to put words in their mouth or anything. So I would say where they go wrong is they spend too much time looking at shapes and not enough time interpreting how those shapes will occur, right? I think they don't pay attention enough to side view as well as the front and rear view that they look at because side view can also tell you a lot about how your body is performing. So putting both those views, side view, rear view, front, side, all of that together will give you the ultimate view, okay? Um, with misinterpreting wrong, I also go with force production. I believe in force production. Now, you can produce force while utilizing your own momentum as well, which is what I think we tend to do. We utilize our momentum of our mass, swinging it around, and that helps us create more force into a joint that we might not be able to just straight up con concentrically produce, right? If we can elastically help that, we get more force out of it. So they interpret that wrong by saying, for one, I'm, I'm almost positive you don't actually absorb force. You produce force to resist force is, is how they tend to say that more in the, we'll just say in the traditional world, I think, right? Um, so with that, you don't absorb force as much as you think. You're not actually absorbing and releasing. You're giving force, it's meeting the other force, and then you have an elastic reaction to happen from that, okay? So that interpretation goes wrong. From there, I think, again, uh, it's all interpretation which is wrong, which kind of extrapolating what they see and making that into something that can cause that to happen. And this is where our whole concept of attributes versus byproducts really comes in. Just because you see the body moving in ways while it's moving, like dynamically, doesn't mean you're intentionally doing that movement, right? I would actually argue that you don't intentionally spin your knees outward ever. Now, does it happen when you run? Yeah, because your foot's off the ground when the mass of your body rotates into that leg. So it, boom, hits. Both of those points spring away from each other, and that's going to cause the leg to start to rotate out, right? It doesn't mean that you're sitting there going, twist my knee out, twist my knee out, twist my knee out, push it out, push it out. I think this is what causes people to essentially look at movement and then not, not extrapolate or interpret what's truly happening. If you can develop the proper byproducts, which would be a stable hip so that your mass can rotate into it, and then that can be used as force to unload the glute into the ground, into the ball of the foot, then you'll start to notice that the byproducts you're actually looking for start to show up. So in the end, alignment of your joints with stability, lateral stability, and then your body having this ab the ability to rotate is what causes it all to occur. But if you look at that from that, just the lens of dynamic movement, you're like, man, well, uh, his knee is facing out. I, I got to roll my ankle here. I got to land like this. But what if he's landing on his big toe and that momentum we just talked about caused a lateral force to occur, a let's say diagonal because your body rotates, diagonal lateral, lateral force, which then pushes your ankle more into a neutral position or more of what looks like supination in that position. And it's not actually you trying to land on a part of your foot, but it's the forces that are occurring that are causing you to see that action, right? That's where I would say a lot of that goes wrong. So if we want to get more specific with it, you think, what do they do? Outside edge, are they still big on that? 
I mean, it's uh, it's it's interesting because they're kind of talking a little bit more about the ball of the foot now. Yeah. If you thoughts. watch some of their more recent content, um, but the, you know, there's still the idea that the dome never collapses, that you don't yep. go inside ankle bone low, you don't have the, the collapse. Isn't like your arch of your foot. Yeah, exactly. So okay. there's a dome-like structure that's not supposed to collapse. And, you know, that, that sort of bony bridge of the foot is, is sort of, that's the way that the, the pressure is supposed to travel, essentially. So with that, this is where I think a uh, pressure wave is like, it's, it's to see the visual, you see that because of the sequence of muscles. So pressure wave, I don't think is the worst term in the world. I do think there is like a pressure wave of energy or momentum being thrown into places. Um, but where they go wrong again is, is kind of interpreting that. So let's go with the arch of the foot. A lot of that comes down to semantics for people and they don't truly understand this. Eversion of your ankle is a collapsing of your ankle inwards. Pronation of your foot is just the translation of your knee going forward to your toes. This causes the arch to collapse so it can come back. It's, that's how that would work. In general, arches are actually strongest when you push them from the top. So think center of the foot above your arch. If you push on that, it will give this type of motion, like a spring. If you push underneath, it breaks an arch. That's how you destroy an arch. So arch support's bad. Putting pressure on the top of the arch, good. If you have too much eversion happening, yes, that will cause an issue. That's going to cause, we can call it excessive pronation, but it's really excessive eversion occurring because you can't actually pronate properly. So if you don't think of pronation as completely flattening my foot and collapsing it inwards, you think of it more like you're learning how to use your plantar fascia correctly. And again, even if that has a little eversion, that rotational momentum is going to cause that not to show up as much as you land. So you'll, you'll be resisting that in a sense, even though your body is going in and out of it. All right. So you, you won't get it. This is why, in my opinion, traditional training, you see a lot of inside edge. They don't have rotation. We already talked about that. They don't treat the lats like that, the chest, the glutes. So really they're hitting the ball of their foot, but they're so linear. They don't have any of the rotational movement that would cause, we'll just say good shapes to show up below. Right. And this is why they're super fast. They juke like crazy. They'll juke you out of your shoes, but then they'll end up tearing their ACL when they just jog down the field is because they're training it a certain way, but without the rotation, which is the rotation is truly hard to figure out. And we'll get to this. This is why I mentioned PRI because they have a piece of this puzzle. They just apply it very wrong. Um, and it's the exercise. If, if you've seen recently, I've posted that they kind of are close, very, very close to, mm -hmm. um, but let's keep going on that. So um, outside of your foot, a lot of that stuff tends to be more, for one, you can't tell where pressure is in a shoe. You don't even know what an ankle's doing inside of a shoe. I play basketball, and I can tell you right now, sometimes my shoe looks like it's folded the other way when my foot is not doing that at all. All right? So I think it's very hard to extrapolate purely by looking at it and going, that's what they're using, instead of understanding, like, that athlete, you ask them, they're putting the ball of their foot in the ground. They 100%. That's their thought, right? They're driving through the ball of that foot. But because they have these good rotational mechanics – or they've used their body the right way. They were never told to squat knees out. They just squeezed and stood up. They tend to still have this rotation and alignment that causes the better shapes to show up underneath, right? Until they're coached out of it for most people. Um, so what else do we have there? Head over foot, all, like all the, all the things they have for their run. Most of it, in my opinion, seems pretty right, except they 
interpret it wrong and they don't look at side view, right? Mm. If your knee is very bow, again, I'm not big on bows. I think that happens because you're aligned and a sequence of movement caused it to look like that at that time. It's not actually a bow leg. A bow leg is not actually good for you. Um, that's like knee valgus versus knee, what is it, var- vargus? Varus, yeah. Varus. I think. You don't want either of those technically, right? That's stressing a misalignment of your, your femur to your shoulder. So, um, so I, I, and, and just quick, quickly, I, I, just sorry, quickly, 15, 15 minute uh, sort of grace period for anyone who's still watching live and you want to ask questions about what we're talking about. Now would be a good time to do it because we're going to be wrapping up in the next like 20 minutes. So <clears> if you have some questions, write them in the chat right now. We'll go ahead. Yeah. So a couple of things with, uh, I, I know go to clarified in terms of the knee, not to definitely don't shove the knee out. It's put the hip back and with a slight rotation. Um, and also I wanted to ask about the side view. What do you think they're missing in the side view assessment? Because that's the traditional assessment everybody does, right? Yeah. So what yeah. exactly are they missing there? Because I know they still do it, but uh, maybe you have some insight on what they're missing there. Okay. So yeah. to clarify with that, what Will said was they don't instruct to push the knee out. Again, I, like I said, I don't follow them a ton, so I wouldn't really know. I do know they were going down in a squat, pushing the knees out and then twisting them in. So I would argue they've probably changed that in the past because it definitely was a knee push out at one point. Yeah. Um, so on top of that, though, I appreciate that, Will, because I'm not trying to put words in their mouth with it. <clears throat> The side view, what you want to look at would be what traditional trainers are actually looking for. You just have to combine that with the front view so or the rear view. So if I'm running and I have these great bows and corners, but you look at my back from the side view and I have an excessive hinge point going on through my lumbar, I'm not actually flexing into my hip. I'm flexing into my spine. Well, that's me not able to use my lumbar fascia, my lumbodorsal fascia as well, right? That fascia gets used by being tight, and then it acts like a springboard, like a diving board. So that's what that side view would be more useful for, is seeing where you you compensate during, let's say, like a flexion type thing. Front view would be more of like how you compensate laterally. So are you you shifting laterally? Um, Well, I guess you you see that from rear view and front view. If you're shifting laterally, if you're collapsing, um, if your compensation is your foot has to evert instead of pronate properly. Um, but then you get that rear view and that's, I mean, you get the side view and you're like, okay, well, is his butt tucked under him? Elite sprinters are not tucking their pelvis when they run, right? They're actually not even thrusting their hips. As we know, your glute is not full concentric firing when your leg is going back behind you like that. It's not how that's working. At that point, your hip flexor is actually doing much more work trying to bring your leg back forward. So that's why you would use that side view and that front view. You kind of see like where their spine's at, um, you know, where they're landing, if they're landing in front of their foot or behind their foot, seeing where their center of mass is currently like fixing on their body. Cause your body's going to do what it does when you run. If you're not sitting there really slowing down and focusing, it's gonna put itself into a, a way that it feels the best. It can produce the force the most the way you taught it. So you got to look for those compensations from side and front in my opinion. Cool. <clears throat> Um, we got a question uh, in the chat here. Are you familiar with the left AIC pattern PRI conveys? <laughs> yeah. So here's how I feel about that. Um, and again, not trying to put words in their mouth. So if I'm wrong, you know, correct me or whatnot, or don't don't overly think about it. But I would say that your organs being asymmetrical doesn't make your body asymmetrical. Okay. 
Your organs being asymmetric, that would mean everyone ever in history, just because your organs are, they naturally are asymmetrical, would mean everyone in history is naturally just asymmetrical for that reason. I don't, I don't really buy that. I think more, it would be a smarter thing to say, like more people are right-handed. So more people are utilizing their chest on their right side and lengthening their lat while they're retracting their left shoulder more often, not stabilizing that shoulder. Well, now I'm, I'm that guy, right? Or if your body's going, hey, we need to fix this, it starts to look like this. It's trying to compensate. The shoulder's trying to come forward. It can't, so it's elevating higher. And now you start to see these patterns show up, right? Everyone in the U.S. drives with their right foot. Well, one leg is extended in front of you. One leg is bent most of the time. You're leaning to one side or one hip. You don't have lateral stability. Your feet are out in front of you while you're laying backwards and you're moving forwards. I would say there's just other factors involved to that AIC, AIC pattern, right? Um, so to me, I don't know, pointing that out is kind of like a redundant factor. Yeah, are a lot of people twisted? Yeah, but for that reason, I don't think so. Um, but let's keep going with PRI because they do have a good nugget in there that people don't realize. And this goes on with what I talk about. Um, for one, I think they go about the breathing aspect funky. I think they have it the right idea, but I think they apply that in a weird way. Again, they're fixing a symptom by rounding things and breathing instead of trying to attack the whole and realizing that maybe that breathing is funky because of something else, right? Um, but here's what they have. Here's a cool piece you should take away from PRI, in my opinion, is what we kind of call cycling the adductors or cycling the femurs. So your adductors, the length of your adductors, the size of your adductors, the shape and the assertion. Your adductors are not glutes. So they shouldn't be treated like glutes, right? A glute is on that joint and it's big, so it can handle a ton of flexion and load, which means side splits would be training you to have glutes on the insides of your thighs, right? Your muscle would actually be located on the corners of that joint and not along the whole leg, mm. which means to me, your adductors are actually more for shifting forward and back. And you know what that does? That rotates you. That's rotation with lateral stability. That is when you're actually here. And now if my right femur pushes forward past my left, I'm actually rotating my entire pelvis and torso that way, or just the pelvis that way. Right. So if you're, if you're watching, it looks like this, let's say these are my knees and these are my femurs. And this is like my glutes learning to go like this while your adductors are active is actually how your adduct adductors are designed to work. Right. But we, you know, fitness, we just go muscles. Let's train them a certain way. So real wide stance, let's do these things. Let's stretch them off to the side. Let's do a, you know, a side lunge. The reality is they work more like this, and that's why we rotate through this section is because when your femurs go like this, your body rotates, and then you go into one hip, into the other hip. But if you start teaching your knees to just fling in and out, mobilizing the hips, you don't get this anymore, and your adductors don't work super well. What is another injury everybody seems to have? Adductor injuries, right? They pull their adductors. They strain them. They're hip flexors because we're literally using the body in a way that it's not designed to be used just because muscles, you know, it's a muscle. You just, you know, that's how you do it. You build the thing, you build up that muscle. It adapts by getting bigger. There's so much more to it than that, but that's what everyone's being taught. So that's a big chunk from PRI. And I hope I didn't like take that. I don't want to study PRI. I just have seen them do this move and I know why I do the exercise and why it's in our eight week foundations course for a specific reason. 
I'll actually give you a tip is like our crawl on the ground. Well, there's one of the things that is cycling your adductors. You're starting to pick one hip up towards the ceiling while the other one's pushing into the ground and you have to have a connection of your hip flexors. So pushing one knee forward while pulling the other off the ground, as you take that step forward as a crawl, you're doing that exact motion. And that just builds you into all of this. If I shorten my left adductor right now and pull my femur into the hip tighter into that socket, look where my body just went. Looks awfully familiar, right? That's how your body's designed. If you can use the adductor right, you can load your glute right. If you use your adductor wrong, your glutes are not going to load very well and other parts will take that, that stress. All right. Cool. So I'm, I'm going to throw one last viewer here, a bone, and this will have to be almost like oh, a speed no. round. What's your top uh, positive that you would take away from the flowability system and the number one thing that you think is causing compensations in the way that they do things? Um, hip extension and squatting with your knees out is a huge no-no. So if you're on your knees, thrusting your hips forward and then rounding your spine, you're kind of, you're, you're literally doing the opposite of what your, your body needs to be doing. That's a big no-no. And I know they're very big on that. Um, they also have this thing. I don't know if they do this anymore, but they were very big on lateral shifting into your hip. Not sure why you want to do that. Maybe they were just trying to figure something out and they were on something and it went the wrong way, which I've been there. It can certainly happen. So not going to, not going to hate on them a ton, but shifting laterally and falling through one hip just breaks so many rules of your body. You're, you're, opposite ql isn't working with your glute medius anymore you're you're not actively keeping tension throughout your body so that would be a big no-no um what they do right what they do right is they say you need a lordotic curve um what they do wrong with that is they say you need it all the time that's that's horrible you don't need a lordotic curve every second of all the time that's not good right do you want to have a lordotic curve while you train? And are you trying to build a good lordotic curve? Yes, but it should be able to flex when it needs to flex. Um, my example of bending down and touching my toes. If I go down there and touch my toes, my lumbar will go into flexion at some point. It won't try to stay arched out, feeling like I'm overly pulling at my, my glutes and hamstrings, which most of the time, I would assume a lot of them end up getting like hamstring injuries or proximal hamstring like triggers way up under like that butt cheek into those sit bones type deal for that reason. They're excessively lengthening out the hamstrings instead of teaching the hamstrings how to properly balance that. Um, and I know you said speed round. It's just, and, and that's, well, it's, it's funny too, that you say that. Cause I, I posted a picture of myself recently doing um, tire flips and I was doing like a, you know, like a locomotive sort of friendly tire flip where yeah, I was, that. you know, one leg in front of the other and a flow guy reached out. He's like, uh, you need to, you need to maintain that curvature in your lower back when you're all the way down there. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't have the range of my hamstrings for that because I'm trying to bias it towards locomotion. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I used to back when I was doing a lot of the, uh, the range of strength oh, stuff yeah, and I was doing the, I you know, I could, I could, yeah, I could do that for days, Good but morning. I mean like, you know, I'm, I'm hinging and I'm, uh, you know, like I'm basically, I'm biasing it towards a locomotive pattern, but at the bottom when I'm reaching for the bottom of that tire, I was going into that flexion of the lumbar spine a little bit and yeah. it didn't you know it's funny because it's like you know you you think oh you go into a little bit of flexion it really <laughs> it hurts your back in a training setting but i mean i wasn't you know well, it, that's, I, I, let me let me just sorry let me just go in real quick because i love the point you're bringing up with that and that's the whole idea of 
training something properly, right? If you were to constantly do that tire flip over and over and over and over and over and over, it's very similar to you just sitting in a deep squat and resting there. And your lower back is going to start to lose its function, its natural function, which is more of an elastic function. So expressing your movement, 100%. If that happens, it happens. That's what your body did to get to that point. But think of it like if somebody were to round their back L3 more because they don't know that that's where it's hypermobile at that, that vertebrae. They've just been overly hinging through. Well, then if they do that, they might hurt themselves. Right. Or do you know what I mean? So if you can reduce that compensation and now you do a thing, like guys, trust me, I lift. What did I do the other day? I grabbed a 300 pound tire and spun it in a circle and threw it. <clears throat> do you think that was good for me? Probably not. Right. But I was just exploring something. I was just having fun. I was seeing what my body could do after all this good training that I believe truly helps fix the body. That's a big difference that people need to know. So I'm not going to go repeat that over and over and swing and swing. But if I can do that and I don't hurt myself, well, I'm definitely more resilient than that guy. Right. So I think that's a, a good little lesson of people learning kind of like, you know, your body's going to do a thing and then maybe not give a ton of advice unless you can actually do a thing really well. So I, I don't know. <laughs> don't, you don't run well. Don't tell someone how to run. If you can't dunk, don't tell me how to dunk. If you can't pick up a tire, don't tell someone how to pick up a tire. Strong men are going to strong men. Don't give them your advice. Let them do what feels best for them, right? In the end, the goal is, are you training to become more optimal as a human, get out of pain, feel good, live a long life, and get stronger? Or are you training for a specific sport that requires you to kind of do certain things that aren't optimal to movement? And you got to discern that for some people. It's just, it's hard. We all been there. I have probably yelled at you in the past. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a, a very in-depth, you know, yeah, like dude. two, almost two full hours flew by in the blink of a freaking eye, which is bananas to me. Will, any closing thoughts so before much. we, before we wrap this up? I just think the viewer should go back and listen to episode 49 as well. Because uh, after listening to that, I, I re-listened today and I was like, we're going to overlap so much. And we actually didn't. So there's yeah. millions of golden two, nuggets two there. full, powerful episodes of really deep biomechanics. Yeah. And, and there's actually a previous one as well that we did on the spinal engine. So uh, yeah, if the viewer Caesar. is really interested in this one and it, this did go in depth, go back and listen to those as well. So if you'll get a lot of golden nuggets. Caesar's actually watching today. Hi, Caesar. Hey. <laughs> What's up, Caesar? I, uh, I really think this is going to change the world. Like some of the ideas presented, this stuff is, this is why we, it's one of a kind fitness. And we got lucky with that name, but guys, like, no one in the world has come up with any of these concepts we just said. Not a single person. Not any of the systems we talked about because they don't know why the things are happening. They don't know why that guy doing this little move is helping him. They just know it's helping him. So they don't, if, if they don't know the why, then they don't know why it might cause harm as well. And this is huge. Like, this is big. People don't look at the lats that way. If you can grasp the whole lat thing we went over, your brain is kind of like, Oh shit. Like what is going on? Sorry. I just, I I wanted to say one more thing. Um, usually when I ask questions, I I did say before I was like to go to, I was like, Hey, you guys answer questions. At least you're willing to do it. And I see a lot of that being ducked. I'm ducked in the industry. You know what I mean? I ask a question, people pretend it didn't happen. Right. And you're one of the only ones that actually just answers and answers thoroughly and gives your actual opinion on the subject and i, I thank you for that yeah you you're, you're not afraid of a debate and that's fantastic i'll say this real quick anthony is in the past i have certainly blocked people and not tried to debate but i came from a point of 
I don't think I had a, a fully set structure to my system. And if I didn't have a fully set structure, I'm not going to just notice I haven't created an eight week program till now. And we've talked on this. I mean, we had that podcast. What? How long ago was that? I, I'll give you the exact date, but it's like probably, probably a year ago till now, because unless we feel confident that it's actually the right path and the right things being put in place, I hate just throwing stuff out there for people. So I've trained people, used different methods than we talked about um, way back. And this is one of the reasons I give them all discounts for new stuff. If you supported me back then when we didn't even have a full structure, heck yeah, dude, I'm going to give you a nice discount for this eight-week course or whatever you want to get into because you supported me when I didn't have it fully set. Now that we feel like we're really, we're really on something. We don't have a, we're going to add things obviously as we, as we experiment, but like the structure, the backbone is really set. And that's why I've unblocked everyone. I've unblocked everyone on my thing. And I'm here to, to start talking about this stuff because I think the logicalness of it just makes you sit back and kind of go like, wow, that's a great point. I really should think about that for a minute. And once you do, you're like, that makes so much more sense than everything else. And it starts to answer your questions. Why were you hurt and not that guy? It really answers those, which is huge, right? And you do that better than most people I talk to. I will give you that, man. So thank you so much for you know this very, very enriching episode. This is yeah, the one that I'm going to be listening back to a good three or four times at least. Guys, if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that like and subscribe button. Leave a little comment if you have questions. We'll get Devin on again for another episode at some point because there's still so many questions, still so many places that I wanted to go personally that we didn't get to go to. Absolutely. But it's right? so easy to get wrapped up in the in the nuance and the detail. You can find Will and I on Instagram. You can find me at Anthony.Manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E. Will is at The Art of Move. Go check out Devin at one of a kind underscore fitness, I do believe. Yeah. Uh, one of a kind dot fitness. Dot got fitness. Lucky okay. That one. Yeah. No, no, no underscore. So, so yeah, underscore. that's why I, that's why I asked and you can find his mm. programs uh, at www.oneofakind.fitness. I do yep. believe, right? Well, yep. You can go to my so it's not even, it's not.com. It's, it's literally one of a kind dot fitness. Yes. Yeah. So go, go, go to his oh, website no. to check out his programs. I'm going to be doing his eight week course here soon myself because I worked with Devin. I got great results when I was working with him one-on-one -on -one, yeah. and I'm like really excited to check out this new course content. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to the art of move okay. podcast. We now have video episodes available on Spotify as well. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, we're uploading in video format on Spotify as well, which is really exciting. Uh, thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you on another episode. And Devin, dude, thank you so much for this. This was like, thank you guys. Dude, we knew it was so going to be you a good what, episode. You know, I love chatting with both of you guys. You really, you really do a good job talking about it and trying to balance things out. So love it. We, we do what we can, man. We definitely do what we can. And uh, to those of you who watched live, thank you for, uh, for hanging out and for asking some good questions too. We'll catch you on another episode of The Art of move have a good one see you later guys